Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I am the senior editor at the GlobalSymmetryProject.com website. Uh, I am pleased uh, today to introduce to you uh, Bruce Jones. This will be episode 19 in the Summit Dialogue podcast series. Bruce and I have had some recent back and forth on the definition and importance of middle powers in the current global order. I thought it would be valuable to invite Bruce into the virtual studio to discuss the role and influence of the middle powers. In particular, I wanted to review with Bruce his recent writings with a number of colleagues on democratic multilateralism and competitive multilateralism. Bruce uh, is currently the director and senior fellow on the Project on International Order and Strategy of the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. He also works with uh, the Center for East Asia Policy Studies. Uh, Bruce, as well, is a consulting professor at the Freeman Spogley Institute at Stanford University. Previously, uh, Bruce served as the vice president and director of the foreign policy program uh, at the Brookings Institution. Bruce's uh, research expertise and policy experience is in international security. His current research uh, focuses on U.S. strategy, international order, great power relations, and of course that's part of the reason for inviting Bruce into the studio today. So, uh, let's invite Bruce into the studio for our discussion. So, it's a pleasure to have Bruce with us in the virtual studio. Um, welcome, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great. Okay, so uh, let me start this way. Uh, in one of your recent articles, this with Adam to Twardorsky, I think is his name is, yep. um, uh, uh, titled uh, Bolstering Democracies in a Changing International Order. You said it is widely accepted that China poses the central challenge uh, to American foreign policy in the first half of the 21st century. So, uh, Bruce, can you kind of, you know, kind of elaborate on what the nature of the challenge is and what actions need to occur both from the international system and from the United States in that circumstance. Right. So, you know, what I've watched in the U.S., I think we're starting to see this now a little bit wider than the U.S., but certainly in the U.S. over the last three or four years, you've seen this kind of fairly rapid change in the understanding of what China is as an entity. It's mm -hmm. gone from a worldview in which the United States looks at China as a uh, you know, a growing, highly influential, eventually a powerful factor to contend with, but one with which it can cooperate, manage things, etc., to much more of a sense of a, of a rival, mm -hmm. a rival for power and a rival for influence in the international system. Mm -hmm. um, and the front line of uh, sort of attack on that, so to speak, or the front line in, in literal terms is naval competition, right? We're toe-to-toe we're -to -toe with Chinese PLAN. We're about submarines circling in their waters. We, you know, it's a really tense naval standoff in the Western Pacific and, and the arms race that follows. Um, but the contention I want to make is that the primary challenge that China poses is not military. I'm not saying that there is no military challenge. Right. 
but it's not the primary challenge they pose. The primary challenge they pose, it seems to me, is that we are now deeply enmeshed in a system for the management of international affairs, a system for the management of international order in which they are fully embedded and they are now seeking to influence that system in ways that are inimical to our interests. We don't really know what that means. We've managed an international system where we were allied with like-minded or democratically minded states, et cetera, against a, an authoritarian foe, right? But it was sort of us against a, an entity that was outside of our systems in the main. We've managed an international system in which there were states of a lot of different types inside a single system, but where there were not sort of enemies within that system. And now we're stuck in a system where our economies are integrated, we're exposed to the same global public goods, we operate with the same core institutions, but right in the heart of that are two very powerful entities who increasingly see themselves as rivals, getting close to seeing themselves as enemies. And we don't know what it means to, to work in that system. So I, I posit that China is more a challenge of international order than it is a challenge of, of sort of military competition in the first instance. Again, not saying the military dimension is not there and will mm-hmm. continue to grow, but it's a deeper and a wider challenge than just the military piece. Okay. So uh, in that piece, again, uh, you, you and Adam said, the United States should adopt a strategy you call democratic multilateralism, seeking to advance uh, a coordination and cooperation among the democracies, but within the contours of the multilateral order. So what's, what, what do you foresee here? I take it this is the piece where you're saying, okay, so there's China. It's there. We have a management issue. Here's in part the way we deal with it. Yeah. So, sort of two 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 elements of this. Okay. So, first of all, I think you saw I had done a piece last year with Jeff Feltman and Will Moreland called "Competitive Multilateralism." We make the yes. point that China has sort of picked up the mantle of seeking influence inside key international institutions and inside the kind of ordering mechanisms of a whole, still somewhat selectively and not doing it in every sort of corner of the world, but broadly speaking. And what it means is that the multilateral system as a whole has become a place or is becoming a place where rather than thinking of it just as that's where we go to structure cooperation, there is a kind of battle over influence, the shape and the direction of the multilateral system and kind of what values it incorporates, what what it's putting out into the world. And Mm -hmm. that sort of sense of a a competition within the multilateral domain for control over the model and control over influence. Obviously, there's always been some degree of competition, but this is a wider, more systemic competition. During the Biden campaign, uh, the team and and the candidate himself started talking about a a central response to the China question and to the Russia question as well, being his idea of a summit of democracies. Mm -hmm. Kind of pull the democracies together and rally the free world against these challenges. And, and it attracted, I think, a resurgence of debate in this in this city, I'm obviously sitting in DC, uh, in a resurgence of debate around things like the Concert of Democracies or the kind of Club of Democracies, those kinds of ideas, which have been abroad, but had receded for some time for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. So my piece on democratic multilateral is a bit of a response to that. I, I absolutely see the logic of the United States wanting to adopt a more competitive posture within the multilateral system. I see the logic of working closely with the democracies, all of the difficulties, and we'll come to those. 
but I have several sort of tactical concerns about organizing it sort of outside the the existing system per se. And, and uh, some of democracies need not be that, but I think it has that flavor and risks being seen as a kind of alternative ordering mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a concern about how viable that is, given the tatters of our own democratic status right now. <laughs> Uh, I have a, a concern that these are tactical more than principle, but I have a tactical concern that a country like India, a country like Japan, which sort of must be at the table if you're going to talk about a club of democracies in any meaningful sense, uh, are very leery still about being put into a mechanism that is explicitly confrontational to the Chinese. Uh, they want to see more competition against the Chinese, etc., but they don't want to be in a kind of alliance against the Chinese. They don't want to provoke that sort of schism of order that they think it will provoke. Uh, and third, of course, there are going to be pl- times and places where we need to work with the Chinese in a, in a different kind of spirit. And uh, and if we kind of create a fissure within the order, that's going to get harder. Um, so it's a kind of an inelegant answer in some way, but I make the case that the way to do it is to work very hard with the democracies inside the core institutions, um, whether that's the WTO, WHO, council, whatever you have. And to my surprise, when I began thinking about it, I, I sort of went back through my own experiences and, and experiences of friends and family during the Obama administration. And I realized that, oh, yes, of course, there are times when there is tactical coordination among a group of like-minded states, et cetera. But there is not actually a very systematic approach to mobilizing the democracies within the key institutions. Uh, so before we go about the business of setting up new institutions that potentially break the existing order, let's at least try to rally democracies within the system. Um, obvious issue in front of us, global public health. Uh, and vis-a-vis the sense of China being able to bully the WHO using their new muscle, et cetera. Well, I took a look at the funding mechanisms of the WHO. Okay, Now, it's not the only issue, but let's take a look. You take the top five democracies plus the Gates Foundation, and we're 44 times more funding than the Chinese. 44 times you would think that we would be able to mobilize that to wield substantial influence in the WHO, right? Um, and so you go through the systems. Now, it's not straightforward. The democracies do not agree with one another on economic issues. You know, during the global financial crisis, the big clash is not between us and the Chinese. The Americans and the Chinese were on the same page as the Germans that were in the way, right? So on the economic issues, it's harder. But on at least a, a substantial set of issues, I think there's a case for trying to bolster cooperation among the democracies within the institutions before thinking about sort of breaking institutions per se. Okay, okay, that's fair. Now, <clears throat> in, in talking about the uh, democratic multilateralism, you identified both Western and non-Western democracy. Why the split? I mean, democracies are democracies, aren't they? And why would you distinguish, let's say, European uh, democracies was, I think, what you were doing with the possible extension to, I suppose, traditional, um, uh, some of the traditional uh, middle powers like Canada, Canada, yeah. the United, uh, Australia, that kind of thing. Uh, and then you talk about uh, non-Western democracies, which I presume means Japan, Korea. But why that distinction? Uh, Japan, Korea, and India, if you still think India. India, yes, sorry. Uh, Indonesia. Um, Essentially because, although I'm glad you challenged me on it, because I'm not sure I had entirely thought that question through, but essentially because there are, even though there are, it's interesting, although there are not good patterns of cooperation with the democracies within multilateral institutions, there is an instinct and a habit to transatlantic cooperation. Mm. 
there's mm-hmm. an instinct and a habit to think, oh, we've got to work closely with the Europeans. Uh, there is not yet that same instinct and habit to work with the Japanese, to work with the Koreans, certainly mm. not with the Indians, certainly not with the Indonesians, certainly not with the Brazilians, again, if there's right. no democracy, right. the Brazilians, whatever, right? So with the Western democracies, you don't have to go very far to convince people of the merit of, co- of cooperation and coordination. Uh, the instinct is there, the habit is there, more outside the multilateral system than within, but it's there nonetheless. So that's just not true yet with the major non-Western democracies. So that's, that's I think, the reason for the case. Okay. Uh, and, a little surprised because, as you saw, Biden very early on in, in this new administration uh, began to talk to Moon uh, right away. And not surprisingly, given how, in my opinion, how badly the Korean file was, was uh, followed by our good friend, the Trump administration, right, or pursued. And so uh, he very early on uh, has uh, engaged Moon, I think, to talk about the Korea file. And Japan, and there was, I, mean, there was, it was, I had a debate with a couple of China folks about what the significance of that was. And I was kind of postulating that this was an important signal from the Biden administration that it wasn't going to be just transatlantic first. And I was very happy. Right, and right. Said, no, and that's not why. He said it was just a question of the time zones. He was up early and made some phone calls. <laughs> I don't know whether that's true or not. <laughs> Okay. It's it's good if the instinct for trans-Pacific cooperation becomes as deeply rooted as the instinct for transatlantic cooperation. (laughs) Hopefully we'll figure out the way to speak. Time zones notwithstanding. Uh, Okay. Um, Well, there's a, you know, in my own mind, in reading through the materials, and you've done a a fair bit of work on the multilateralism multilateralism question, also the middle power question, because we've been engaged a little bit in that. In, in some uh, posts, I, I wanted to understand that how you put together, you know, the democratic multilateralism with the competitive multilateralism, which you also wrote about. And I wasn't yeah. quite clear how the two things fit together. Well, it seems to me that competitive multilateral competitive multilateralism is a, is a depiction of the current state of play. Mm-hmm. Democratic multilateralism is a proposed strategic response. To I that see. Okay. Play, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know. The, the fact of the Chinese deciding to, and I think it was a very clear and explicit decision, deciding to use the multilateral space as a zone in which to try to exert power, mm-hmm. perfectly legitimate for them to do so, uh, but changes the nature of the, uh, of the business and requires a response from us. That response could be withdrawal, uh, you know, concede, uh, mobilize on a number of different bases is I think our best chance of success is mobilizing in the basis of, of, of the de- democracy. So a, a response to a new reality of competitive multilateralism is a strategy of democratic multilateralism, at least if you want to stay within the multilateral system per se. The alternative also, as I say, you could break out to your own club of democracies. I just think that that's uh, unwise right now. Uh, okay, interesting. I, I'll just pose in a slightly uh, different frame, but very similar. Our good friend John Eikenberry, of course, has done his, I'm not sure it's the last volume, but certainly the third volume, in his, at least now a trilogy on uh, uh, liberal internationalism, as he's come to define it in his most recent book. Um, but, but nevertheless, uh, you know, he distinguishes what he calls a, a Westphalian order, from a liberal international uh, order and sees it distinct. Both are designed, you know, to promote um, uh, prosperity and stability. Uh, in urging uh, the democratic multilateralism, you seem to be urging a kind of liberal international order frame 
but evidently the organization keeps at bay China. Clearly, it would not include China, the democratic multi multilateralism. Uh, in that sense, you seem to be dividing the world into two parts. No, I'm explicitly trying not to, right? I mean, the, I, it seems to me that a kind of summit of democracies and a club of democracies and a concert of democracies All those, yes. would divide the world in two parts. I'm trying to say keep the world within a single multilateral system, but mobilize for impact and effect and defend core values and core interests within that. That will require, you know, tough negotiations and pressure and, and, and coming to head with some of these things. Um, better done in larger coalitions. So if you not, you know, if China wants to go into the WHO and mm -hmm. got its infectious disease monitoring capability, which it did when it had the, the director general of the WHO, we should not want it to do that. And we should fight back. And we should fight back, not just as the United States, but as Britain and the United States and Canada and Australia and Germany and, you know, tons of other actors who would share an interest that we would have in having an effective system for global health control versus the Chinese, right? And so it's a question, do we want to do battle within those systems, mano a mano, US or China, or do we want a wider coalition around us? And that coalition could be just anybody who's willing to be multilateralist on any given topic. Mm -hmm. But I think for there to be any kind of depth uh, organizing with the kind of major, the more the powerful democracies has the, the best chance of success. But, but if, you know, you're promoting in the, a de democratic caucus, I suppose, or multilateralism, right? Um, why don't you just uh, target uh, one of my favorite institutions, the G7? You know, you've got that institution there. It's made up of, of democratic countries. Why are you going abroad to, you know, dragons to fight? I mean, why don't you just use what's already uh, existent? You can. I don't have any problem using the G7. I mean, we'll come to the question of whether the G7 should expand to other include other democracies. Um, you know, look, it could be a G7 caucus within the WHO and a G7 caucus within WHO. You know, that'd be fine. I mean, it's just it's not okay. it's not all the democracies. Uh, the G7 hasn't no. often no. taken that view. It hasn't sort of organized itself to act within the UN, for example. There's no G7 meeting at the UN. There's no G7 caucus at the UN. That's part mm -hmm. of what I said. And I was surprised when I thought began to think about it. I was like, well, why don't we do that? Isn't it obvious? Wouldn't that be an obvious first step? And it's sort of surprising the way that we have. And I think it's an artifact of the huge scale of American power at the end of the, the at the end of the Cold War, right? We didn't really have to worry about building coalitions to get what we wanted. We just told people what we wanted and we got what we wanted. And coalitions emerged, but they were kind of coalitions of the Nordics or sort of north-south coalitions designed to do things in the development space, whatever. We never really had to worry about fighting our corner. Uh, so we just don't have those mechanisms. So I mean uh, using the G7 would be an obvious place to start within the you know within mm -hmm. the other institutions. We just haven't done that yet. Okay. And you also described uh, the creation of a partner's council on international security. Now, what's that? In, and again, yeah. structurally, how does it all fit in? Yeah. So this is the one place where I sort of, I, I do nudge a little bit farther away from the, within the multilateral, right? Um, because you are going to confront a challenge uh, in trying to do anything through the security council, um, it's just, it's not particularly a high cost these days for the Chinese, for the Russians to veto stuff in the council, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think it's particularly high cost for them to veto stuff as long as the kind of driving force within the council is the P3. It's just, you know, politically, it doesn't cost them much to, to veto stuff. Mm -hmm. I think the costs of them go up 
when you have Germany in the room, when you have India in the room, if you have Japan in the room, if you have a wider cast of characters in the room, I think the diplomatic costs of the Chinese and then the Russians go up. Um, so I want more countries in the room that are going to be willing to work with us on a range of issues. We're not always going to agree. I want to increase the cost to the Russians and the Chinese from defecting from the council. Now, if I could wave a magic wand and do council reform, that's how I'd do it, but I can't. So the idea of a partner's council is just use the convening power of the United States to invite such countries as would be the next tier of actors in, the Germans, the Japanese, et cetera, the Indians, and call them to a table. The fact that it's not formally inside the horseshoe, okay, call them to the table next door mm-hmm. and consult them on the issues that are in front of the council, hear their views, hear their ideas, have the debate with them, and bring that into your own uh, considerations in the council. Now, it requires the United States to be a little bit more open-minded to input from its allies than it's traditionally been. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a penny that may be finally dropping in the United States, certainly with this administration. So you, a way to yep. give them a kind of substantial increased stake in the diplomacy around international security issues. And as I say, I think it raises the cost of the Chinese and the Russians of uh, of vetoes. Um, it's a modest proposal. It's not going to transform the. It's not going to transform the options. But I think it's a step towards keeping uh, keeping the council intact as a kind of lodestar of the, of the multilateral system. I'm I'm quite traditional in these terms. It seems to me that sort of Article Two of the UN Charter is a an absolute uh, pillar of the of the multilateral order. And we if we walk away from a sense that the major powers. Uh, come together in some fashion to debate and, and try to minimize their disruption within the council. We're in very dangerous territory. So if we can keep the council and its adjacent pen, you know, penumbra as a functioning entity, I think that matters a great deal. Sorry, Article 2 of the UN Charter being? Don't uh, take territory by force. Oh, okay. Prohibition against the use of force. In your yes. House. Okay. Sorry. Really, uh, we violate occasionally, but it has been violated only very modestly since it was signed. Okay. So when I take it, your thinking might be when the Security Council would meet on an issue, a Chapter 7 type issue, the United States would also call in the next room, metaphorically, in the next room, this uh, Partners Council on International Security, Democratic, principally Democratic states, uh, to what? To, To express their views and therefore to, at least in some manner, pressure uh the p5 uh to to kind of uh, yeah, or give, i think in you know, an ideal world it would give the united states ammunition as it goes into the kind of horseshoe chamber and sort of argues its case and can okay I mean, not to be able to say we speak for the indians or the you know nobody's going right. to get that far but at least to to carry with it uh, a wider sense of what it is that's feasible now it goes to a an issue which we should surface hmm. um and, and, you know, I may be just dead wrong about this, but it seems to me that we are, we live in a world now in which the West in its narrowest sense, so let's take the G7. Okay. The G7 coming out and saying, this is how things should be. 20 years ago, boy, an awful lot was going to organize around that, right? Like the G7 coming out and saying, this is how it should be. Okay. It wasn't going to be exactly like that, but that was going to drive an awful lot of what happened. Uh, the narrow West coming out now and saying, this is how it should be, produces a bunch of people saying, okay, that's the West point of view. Now let's get on with the rest of the conversation or the rest of the debate, right? The West, okay. the narrowest sense of the West just doesn't carry 
that same weight in international affairs as it used. Right. The next jump is to go up to the G20. Yes. That body. Exactly. But then you have the Chinese there and the Russians. <laughs> That's problematic. You know? But isn't that who you want there? I mean, not, that in is our... not in the first instance, or at least you don't want them to be able to veto stuff in the, in the first instance. So what I'm interested in is can we expand this Okay. The sense of who's in the sort of table setting rooms, who's in the kind of agenda setting room uh, that that shapes that. And to be perfectly frank, although right now it's not what's necessary, if you had a mechanism like that, it would also constrain the United States. And that may well prove very necessary in the future. I don't think of it as only about okay. the Chinese. Okay. I think it should also be proc about constraining the United States. Okay, right? These are two powers who are not always going to play nice within this system. Uh, and that can get very dangerous. And we should be trying to think through what kind of mechanisms uh, make it harder for the United States to just go silly buggers and make it harder for the Chinese to do what they're trying to do. Um, and a kind of expanded G table that doesn't include necessarily all of them would be would be part of that, in my view. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm always reminded of our good colleague, uh, the former Prime Minister of Canada, the Right Honorable Paul Martin, who I work with quite a bit. And, you know, he, he was very clear about the G20, you know, and this is in contrast to the G7. He said, well, you know, I'm more interested in sitting down with the people. I don't necessarily have to agree with them. In fact, I'm not likely to agree with them at all, but I need to move the yardsticks. Uh, and for him, particularly on questions of globalization and, and so forth, so that he saw the G20 as really crucial in, in advancing um, uh, efforts on global governance issues, right? Um, and, uh, you know, and it was exactly because it included people he didn't necessarily agree with, uh, most particularly, I presume, uh, but I've never asked him, the, the Chinese and so forth, uh, that uh, he felt that, that that was the appropriate forum for dealing with uh, the critical issues of the global order. Yeah, and look, I don't want to get rid of the G20. I still want the G20, and I still want the wider mechanisms. I just want an ability to mobilize uh, and orchestrate on policy and on spending with a subgroup of actors that share somewhat different values than the Chinese and the Russians do. They're doing it. They're <laughs> mobilizing their friends and cohort. We're just not responding. Uh, and they're outmaneuvering us, and that's partly a function. And, and you see them doing this principally in in places like the WHO. In other words, within the formal institutions Absolutely. of the international system. You're not talking about the SCO and no, 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 no. Shanghai no, cooperation. No, no, no. No, that's not the point. Formal institutions mobilizing their sort of new clients and their power base and their friends mm -hmm. and their like-mindeds and the people they've bought in. Yeah, we're kind of playing passive. You know, um, and we need okay. to. So you have to get much more active in that. I take it you're targeting in part the new administration. And let me ask you, therefore, you know, how destructive has the Trump administration been with respect to American foreign policy making and the ability to influence and shape uh, the global order, given it the four years in which it held office? You know, I would have answered that question differently in October of 2020 than I answer it now. Sure. Um, let me say two or three things on it, okay? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One, which is a thing I'm trying to do in these papers, is not to approach the multilateral system in a kind of kumbaya way, right? There are <laughs> multilateral institutions that matter, and there are multilateral institutions that are friggin' irrelevant. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just couldn't care less if they wither and die, right? I'm not 
I'm not attached to multilateralism capital M per se. What I'm per attached se. to is the ability to solve problems. Right? Okay. Um, and, but that sometimes gets lost in the kind of defense of multilateralism. So all multilateralism is good, right? Or any agreement is good. And I want to push back on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that because, you know, there was sort of a part of the Trump administration that was about mentioning that the emperor had no clothes with respect to this or another multilateral. I was like, fine. Yeah, the emperor does have no clothes. That's fine. Fine to say that. And I worry a little bit that the Biden administration may rush to pretend that some emperors have clothes just because the Trump administration said they were naked. And I think that shorts up. Okay. I think he ultimately, though, did very deep damage to a sense of the United States as a reliable entity. Okay. And uh, I think people were, both Americans and international audiences, were dismayed, no other word for it, that the election results in November was so narrow. I mean, okay, it wasn't narrow in the popular vote, but it wasn't huge in the popular vote. It was a 2% delta. It's not huge, you know. By American standards, it's okay. Although uh, seven, seven million is not a small number. I mean, well, it's two percent of the electoral. It's a two percent of the voting population, right? I mean, most countries in the world, we saw somebody win fifty-two to forty-eight, would say it was a fairly narrow victory. That's essentially what we had here. Right? Okay, we're yeah. trumping the seven million. Yes, seven million is a big number, but out of the American voting population, mm-hmm. you know, Clinton won by seven percent of the voting. Two percent is not that big, uh, and the electoral college vote was incredibly narrow. And I think there was a sense of sort of shock and dismay that fantastic incompetence and the fantastic racism of the man and the people around mm-hmm. him didn't warrant a more full-scale repudiation, right? Then he denies the election result, lies massively. I, nobody's particularly shocked by that. I think people were utterly shocked and dismayed by the whole-scale craven extent to which congressional Republicans went along with him for the performative effect and for the fundraising, et cetera, while allowing the damn thing to build. Mm-hmm. And then the events of 6th January, which were utterly shocking, where the president is essentially mobilizing a domestic white supremacist group to forcibly block the uh, certification of a, an election result. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have, I'm sorry to say it, for the first time in American history, you do not have a peaceful transfer of power. It's been the signature call of American leadership is, you know, that in, in the end, in this most powerful nation in the international system, when push comes to shove, power is transferred peacefully. Mm-hmm. It was not in this occasion. Yes, it was transferred, but it was not transferred peacefully. That's a fundamental blow. And uh, in my calls and discussions with European leaders and Asian leaders, et cetera, I think you definitely have a shift from, as I say, October where people were just waiting for this to be over. And, you know, they wouldn't say just back to business as usual with Biden. They're aware of the, the challenges, but at least they were kind of fresh start, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, now much more of a sense of worry that this is just a kind of four-year, that Biden is the four-year interlude, not that Trump was the So he's the interregnum. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, or at least you can't count on him not being. You can't count on him winning in 2024. You can't count on Harris right. if she runs. You can't count on it not being a, Josh Hawley, who's the Republican nominee, right. can't right. count not winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, you just can't count on it. So how many eggs are you going to put in the American basket? I see. I see. So let, let me ask you this last question. So you and I have had some exchanges 
on you know this these issues of middle powers and multilateralism um you know you know over the relative weight of physical factors that is for for states right population economic dynamism military capacity etc cetera, etc cetera, versus behavioral factors such as leadership uh, assertiveness creativity we were talking about that to a certain degree just now in the definition of middle powers and whether, you know, middle powers is or isn't a particularly uh, meaningful category. We've also discussed the dynamics of so-called force field of international politics, multilateralism versus plurilateralism versus bilateralism versus uh, unilateralism. How would you now pull all of this together, these factors, into an overall perspective on how you would characterize you know, kind of the middle power equation and the multilateral equation in the context of the global order. Where are we and where are we going? Yeah. Uh, you want me to be optimistic or pessimistic? As <laughs> well, I prefer <laughs> optimism, but you may not have it. <laughs> so I'm, it's up to you. <laughs> All right. So look, um, uh, you know, structurally, it seems to me we are rapidly moving into what I call asymmetric bipolarity, right? There are two powers that matter more than everybody else, the American and the Chinese. Okay. They have a stake in every game and every region of the world. Any capital making any decision on any issue has to worry about what Washington will think and they have to worry about what Beijing will think. Okay. Now, in issue X or issue Y and topic X or topic Y, they may have to take in another couple of actors, but across the board, you have to worry about the Americans, you have to worry about the Chinese. So bipolarity in that sense, asymmetric in the sense that the United States is still more powerful than the Chinese. But. Yep. But if you think about the Cold War, the gap between the top power and, you know, within the Western bloc, let's say the gap between the top power and the next power within that block was huge. Right. right. It's much less huge now. If you think about the EU as an economic bloc, for example, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's much closer to the mm -hmm. Chinese than that. Maybe it's a little different in the Chinese context. Although if you think about sort of Russians and the Chinese being in some sort of, I don't know what, some sort of conservator, or, you know, in military terms, the, Ch the Russians are pretty close to the Chinese. They're not in yeah. economic terms. So the gaps are not as big. Uh, and there are a lot of actors in the system that have a degree of power now in mean, Japan, India, Koreans, European, mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. of actors, right? So I think the system, although it's sort of structurally asymmetric bipolarity, works and feels a lot like multipolarity. Um, and there mm -hmm. are pros and cons in that. It does make pluralism in the terms that you mean it possible uh, in a way that a kind of purely bilateral system, a purely bipolar system would not. In that construct, it seems to me that the tier of powers below the United States and China, mm -hmm. I exclude the Russians because they're just spoilers, but the Japans, the Germanys, the Indias, the Britons, the Frances, the Koreas, maybe you include Canada in that, you know, that tier of, of countries mm -hmm. have a pretty huge stake in keeping up some set of systems that regulate international relations behavior, at least to some degree, what gets, you know, rules-based international order for lack of a better term, uh, or treaty-based international order for lack of a better term. And those countries, it seems to me, have a reasonable amount of power within the system. You, know, you can't just kind of blow over the Japanese, you can't just blow over the Indians or the Germans, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that tier of powers, I think if I were to be more precise, I would describe them as major powers, and then below that are, you know, middle powers, the Swedes and the Norwegians or whatever. Okay, but so what? That's a fairly blurry line anyway. 
But that group of countries, you know, which is more puissant than the Central African Republic or Senegal or, or Chile, whatever, that, that tier of, of countries, more or less, it's the membership of the G20, have a huge stake in the defense of the system. And if they act coherently and act effectively, they can raise the cost to the Chinese, to the Americans, to the Russians of breaking that system. And they can advance certain causes. And we've seen this. We saw the, the Japanese keep the TPP-11 alive even when the United States was saying bugger it all, et cetera. Yep. We saw during COVID, uh, the Brits, the Germans, the Canadians, a bunch of people keeping the mechanisms of global health cooperation alive when the yep. Chinese and Americans are going after each other, right? Mm-hmm. So my argument is to that sphere of countries to, to do the hard work of defending the core institutions and the core arrangements of a multilateral order. And it seems to me it's more likely to succeed if they can, to some degree, come together as a, as a, as a group in, in that pursuit. I was disappointed in the German Alliance for Multilateralism. You know, when it was sort of first conceived, it was going to be Germany, Japan, India, and Canada. Uh, and then, you know, the Canadian elections happened, so the Canadians couldn't quite get there. And then the Japanese elections happened, so that sort of fell away, and the Indians couldn't make up their mind and <laughs> these things. And so it became a Franco-German thing. And I just, right. in today's right. world, the Franco-German access, to me, it's like, oh, look, it's the 1990s, and the Europe want, <laughs> Europeans want the world back. It just doesn't fly. Whereas if you had had a Japanese, German, Indian, Canadian grouping saying, look, we really care about these things. We're prepared to put serious muscle into them. That would, you know, you'd have to sit up and take notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I'm sort of striving for. And all the things I'm writing are, you know, dancing around the edge of that. If you had a, a grouping like that of major powers willing to put serious muscle and coordinate policy in defense of this stuff, I think the, the top powers would be forced to notice. Okay. Uh, one last point based on what you've just described is, okay, so where do you manage the U.S.-China relationship? You do it's it at clearly all. not down there, uh, not at that levels. I mean, look, I do think you do it at all levels. Obviously, bilateral relations are going to be a right. texture of this, okay? Um, I do think you want, you know, if there's a kind of serious deterioration on U.S.-China relations on, I don't know, you know, pick your issue. Mm-hmm. I, you know, that can go south real fast, given the state of, of play. Yep. And it would not be the worst thing if a small group of these kinds of countries that we're talking about step forward to say, look, we actually might have some ideas for how this can get managed or get resolved, etc. It's not going to be the UN that does that. It's not going to be those kinds of things. Right. A small right. group of those kinds of countries were willing to do the diplomacy. You could help uh, navigate some of those issues. And as I said, on things like the trade deal, having the Japanese sort of pick up the ball and run with it, you could imagine Germans picking up the ball and running with JCPOA negotiations. I mean, you can imagine a number of things like that where it doesn't, the issue doesn't have to be managed only in the bilateral space. You're never going to solve the problem without the United States and the Chinese at the table. But the kind of the, the wedge, the diplomatic wedge doesn't have to start in either Washington or Beijing. It could start in Ottawa, it could start in Berlin, it could start in Tokyo, okay. uh, start in Stockholm, you know, sort of move the needle. Yeah. Um, and it's not like we've never done that before. It's how we manage the Cold War, right? You know, mm-hmm. Ottawa used to be very, very good at figuring out how to maneuver diplomatically to get the Americans and the Soviets to kind of de-escalate on a particular issue. Mm-hmm. So the Swiss, lots of countries just do that. We've sort of forgotten that diplomatic habit, right? We're going to have to learn it again. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Bruce, for taking time to uh, join with us on these issues. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, 
and thank you. Uh, and hopefully we'll be speaking with you again soon on these kinds of issues. Pleasure being here.